0: Since it's been built up so much, I'd probably better say something about dealing with the impossible, don't you think? Um, you know, the Bible is filled with stories about dealing with the impossible. I don't know if you've thought about that a lot. Um, let me tell you up front that my intention is here to, is to relate a couple of those stories with you this morning. Because I know good and well that I'm, when I'm looking at a crowd this size... There are some of you out there this morning that think you're dealing with the impossible. And I just want you to leave here with the notion, with the belief, with the confidence that with God's help, you can deal with that impossible. Because it might be possible, after all. Consider the first story I want to relate to you from the Bible. Most of us heard this when we went to Bible school when we were kids in 1446 BC I wasn't told the number then but (laughs) that's when it was 1446 BC Moses led the children of Israel or the Israelite nation out of Egypt Moses had met God perhaps a year or a little bit more than that before that at a burning bush down near Mount Sinai And God told Moses, I want you to go up to Egypt and lead my children out of that. And Moses said, that's impossible. I can't do that. God said, yes, you can. Furthermore, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground, my friend. So Moses takes off his shoes, and God said, that's what I want you to do. And Moses says, I can't. So this goes on for a little while until God finally says, okay, I'll send your brother down to help you. So Moses trucks across the... Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, and after a lot of plagues and so on, he leads nearly two million people out of Egypt. And what happens to them right away? They bump into the impossible. They got the Red Sea in front of them, and they're trapped by the Egyptian army. How we could, you know, it's impossible. Moses looks up to God, strikes the sea, and it parts, and they walk across on dry land. once more time, the impossible has happened. So they move on a little bit later, and don't you know, they come to some water, and they want to get a drink, and it's nearly three days now since they've looked. Oh, you brought us out here in the desert, and we're going to die out here. It's impossible to do what you're saying. Moses prays to God, and the water that's bitter turns sweet, and they have water, and the impossible has once again been defeated. Truck on a little bit further. We don't have anything to eat. You brought us out here to die. We're going to die out here. This is impossible what you're asking us to do. Moses pleads with God. Oh, these people, all they do is complain. So God says manna from heaven. They get it every morning. Get fresh bread every day. Might not be taking baked biscuits or anything, you know, that's fresh out of the oven. But it's manna from heaven and it's food. A little bit further, they get attacked by the Amalekites from behind. Ah, you brought us out here. These people don't, you know, all they know how to do is lay bricks as slaves. They don't know how to fight an army. But the impossible becomes possible. And you remember this story from Bible school days, how they go out and hold up Moses' arms, and, and the battle is won in their favor, and if he gets weak, so they prop it up with... I don't know, sticks and rocks and so on. But they win. The impossible once again is defeated. Go a little bit further. We're out of water again. Where are we going to get a drink? So God says, strike a rock over there. So he strikes a rock and we get fresh water. On and on we go. And it's just such an, an amazing story. But they camp at Mount Sinai. And God visits them, gives them the Ten Commandments. And that's After a year or so, and I'll spread this, get along with the story here, because after all of these victories, after all these defeats of the impossible, they take off and they've been, you know, they have a marching formation and they've learned how to build a tabernacle and take it up and put it down and take it with them and they've got the Ark of the Covenant and they go up to this land that's been promised, clear back to their forefather Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on, They have this covenant. This is supposed to be their promised land. So here they are, camp just south of the land. Well, we better send some spies in to look at this. So they send in 12 spies. And they come back, and 10 of them says, it's impossible. We can't take that. Those people are big. Maybe they were my size. I don't know. But (laughs) I don't mean, I mean the Israelite people. But anyway, too big. We can't do this. Joshua and Caleb says, yes, we can. The other ten said, no, we can't. So what did the people believe? After all of these miracles, changing, you know, getting water out of a rock, changing bitter water to sweet water, defeating the Amalekites. Think back of all of the miracles that have gone on here for them to defeat the impossible, and I haven't even related all of them. There's more, but I want to give you a flavor for this out here. The Israelite nation decides it's impossible. And God says, I'm fed up. I've had enough of you people. Everybody that's 20 years or old is going to stay out here and die. We're going to wait 40 years. You can just stay here until we've got a new generation to go into the promised land. So they do that. They wander out there in the desert for the next 39 or so years, something like that. All because they didn't believe that God would help them do the impossible. I want to relate a story to you this morning. Feeding the 5,000. I want you to think a little bit about how that Old Testament story that I just picked out of there, I could have picked some others, by the way, about the impossible, but Jesus feeds 5,000, also a familiar story to us, in fact, it's the only miracle recorded in the New Testament and the four Gospels that all four Gospel writers recorded except for the resurrection. Feeding of the 5,000 is the only one. I want to use John's example for, uh, or for his write-up. So if you'd like to turn to John chapter 6, I'll have the scripture on the screen there for you. But as we do this, I want you, I want you to think about three things. Just because we think it's impossible doesn't necessarily mean that it is That would be point number one, and I'll visit these later, but for those of you that like to take notes, I'll sit here a second, because I see some doing that. Just because it seems to you like it's impossible doesn't mean that it really is. Secondly, if God is in it, if he's asking us to do the impossible, he'll give us the resources we need. Think about all those stories. I just, you know, those impossible situations that we are, and I know you know that story well enough to know God supplied manna from heaven, for example. If God is assigning you the impossible, He'll give you the resources to get it done. And thirdly, and this one might be kind of tough to handle. <clears throat> God may actually give you impossible situations for you to deal with. There may be various reasons why he does that, but it may be so impossible that for you, you have to depend on a miracle to get it done. And you watch what happens here in this feeding of the 5,000 because that actually happens. That's not something we like to think about that God may actually do that to us. But, of course, he does it. If he does, he does it for his own good. And I'm going to relate a story to you at the end that uh, will will tell you that I, I know an individual that, that actually happened to. So, if you will, and those of you that like to follow along, um, turn to John chapter 6, starting with verse number 1. Sometime after this. I'll stop right there because John kind of does this in the first five chapters of John, he's been really careful to, to outline things progressing as he remembers them and as, he's, as, as they happened. And most of what he's written about is not included in the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels uh, that record the feeding of the 5,000 say that, that what happens right here is that Jesus took his disciples because he just found out that John the Baptist had been killed. And he wanted to get away for a little while. So the other three Gospels, if, if that's correct, uh, John just says sometimes after this, but doesn't say it that way. Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. By the time John was writing his Gospel, which was 25 or so years after Luke had finished his, um, that Sea of Tiberias that you see there, that was an emperor, a Roman emperor that the sea had been named after. Most of us just know it as the Sea of Galilee. John was just trying to make sure that everybody was talking from the, you know, we're talking about the same sea here. So let's look at where this is. I know this map could stand to be a little bit bigger, but you can uh, see the Sea of Galilee is right up there, and that's the Jordan River going down here. Um, oh, i got a got a help pointer there. And the Dead Sea is right there. Somebody's helping me. Anyway, this feeding of the 5,000 happens on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, a town there, I don't, you probably can't read it, but it's called Bethsaida. Luke tells us that. John doesn't say it's Bethsaida. And incidentally, for those of you, um, this area right here that I'm, that I'm going round and round, and I'll do it over here for you, too, for you people watching. That's called the Golan Heights. When you hear that on the news, that's the area we're talking about here. Uh, over here on the eastern side, northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee and up in here, it's called the Golan Heights. But when, it said, when John said they crossed over the sea, they crossed from Capernaum across the northern end of the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And it's probably, I looked it up, it can't be more than about five miles are probably riding in some kind of a boat as a ferry system or something like that. You could also walk across there. That's also the Jordan River that is flowing into the Sea of Galilee. And just for, you know, context and purposes here, Jesus headquartered during his ministry at Capernaum along with Peter, which is up on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee here. So he probably got in the boat and went across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee Um, Jerusalem is down here. Jesus would go at least once a year down to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, and probably more often than that. The normal way to travel was down the eastern side of the Jordan River, back in here across at Jericho, and go winding up the road uh, to Jericho, to Jerusalem. So, back to our feeding of the 5,000 there at Bethsaida. I just wanted you to realize they were up there. About a year has gone by, and we know that because at the very end of, the, of verse number four, we see that the Jewish Passover was near. Jesus has been ministering in the Galilean area up there for, well, over around a year now since he turned the water into wine. And, and um, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Now, remember the story I told you about Moses and the Israelite nation coming out and all of the impossible situations. Following him. It was possible to go across there on foot. You didn't have to ride a boat. You could run, you know, that five or six miles to get across there. But they were following him because they'd either heard about or seen him, you know, heal a crippled man, a man with a withered hand, a blind person, uh, an official's son from um, Capernaum. Uh, I'm probably not thinking all of all of them, but during that first year and in around this that Galilean area up there, he had performed quite a number of impossibilities, shall we say, miraculous signs. Uh, and the people were chasing him because uh, he had performed so much on the sick, and perhaps there were some there. And it says that you know the other gospel writers said that he uh, sat down and talked with his disciples, but he also healed some sick while he was there. So he's up there on the side of the mountain uh, talking with his disciples and John just kind of throws this in. I feel like he does this because when he gave us the story about turning the water into wine a year ago, he also said the Passover time is near. That's how, that's how I know that a year has gone by here because John is kind of keeping track of time for us. Okay, so he's talking to his disciples And when Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Why would he ask Philip? Why Philip? For those of you that have your Bible open, if you'd like to take a peek and go back to chapter 1, verse 44, Philip is from Bethsaida. Philip knows whether there's a Panera Bread Company in town or not. (laughs) Yeah. You know, where... Where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Philip ought to know. He's from there. Um, So was Andrew. Um, And there's this part about testing. He asked this only to test him. Because Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus actually put his disciples on the spot. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? This is John's version. If you peeked back in the other Gospels, they wrote it in such a way as, as that the disciples were saying to Jesus, "You need to send these people home. Send them out of here. We don't have enough food to feed these people, uh, so they can go to the villages and find something to eat." Because we can't. And one of the Gospel writers can't remember whether it's um, um, Matthew or Luke says Jesus said, "You feed them." well he asked this in, in John's interpretation he asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do I find it comforting I guess is the word that if God decides to test me he has in mind what he's going to do I might not like the idea of being tested so much, but I can depend on God because he has in mind what he's trying to do with me. Let's move on here and see what Philip has to say. Philip answered him, he didn't say, you know, Jesus asked him, where are you going to buy the bread? And Philip says, eight months wages wouldn't buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. He kind of sidesteps the question. He says, we don't even need to go to Panera Bread Company because we don't have enough money. Not only do we not know whether there's enough bread there. And Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a boy here with five small barley loaves. Emphasis on small and barley. Come back to it in just a second. And two small fish. But how far will they go among so many people? Now, we haven't been told yet here by John. We already know that it's 5,000 people. The other gospel writers tell us 5,000 plus women and children. So we're talking about a lot of people here. You know, that's, we're, we're talking half of Huron. Grief on a mountainside. Eight months' wages won't buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. This is impossible. Philip has seen here again I repeat, but he has seen all kinds of miracles, hasn't he? He's seen the withered hand, he's seen a leper healed, he's seen a woman with an issue of blood healed. There's there's any number of miraculous signs during this first year, maybe a month plus a month or so, that, that we've been ministering in the Galilean area. And Philip doesn't even think of the idea that perhaps this is one of these situations where we could defeat the impossible. And Andrew joins right in with him, takes the easy way out. <laughs> well, there's a boy here. This, John's the only one that tells us there's a boy. The other gospel writer just says, we've got five loaves and two fishes. But John even goes so far as to say, five small, take and bake biscuits. Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> small. Barley. There's an indication in barley whenever you, you see that and you go back to the Old Testament for it as well. Barley loaves were for people that were poor. If you had well to do, if you were well off in those days, you'd have wheat loaves. But he had barley loaves. And two small fish I'm thinking bluegills for you fishermen. Um, How far will they go among so many? It's just impossible. We can't feed these people with this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now here's where I have a little fun. I don't know how many of you, I, I know some of you, get in front of people and you've tried to make them move from where they're sitting or standing you ever tried that how i'm just going to have a little fun here how about if i ask the back two rows of this congregation to come up here and fill up these front rows are you coming do you see what i mean but have the people sit down you this that's that's not possible i've tried it <laughs> Do you remember when, um, several years ago, when Pastor Wolgamot was here, it used to kind of amuse me just a little bit. We'd come for Sunday night Bible study. And people would come in, and they'd be using up the back rows. So we got a little podium or a little something, and he kept making his way back until he would be standing uh, back there, maybe... Maybe it's about where Willard is sitting, something like that. Uh, somewhere in there he used to stand to teach from. Because that's where the people sat. He didn't want to come up here. And furthermore, if he would come up here and said, would you folks join me up here so I don't have to feel like I'm shot?" Do you see what I'm saying? I'm just saying that getting 5,000 5, people to sit down is really quite a task. Furthermore, the other gospels, tell us that, and Luke in particular tells us, he had them sit in groups of 50. Well, there's certainly people there that don't like each other and don't want to be in this group, so I don't know what they're going to do about that. Also, women and children did not sit with the men. So, we've got groups of 50, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. I'm just saying, there's all kinds of impossibilities embedded in this story here. So, he's got them sitting down, and there's plenty of grass... He's already told us it's the Passover season, so we know it's the spring of the year. So there's a place for him to sit. But I I, I can't help, I have to pause. Can you picture 5,000, maybe maybe 7,000, 8,000 with women and children? Can you picture that many people sitting on a mountainside? What an impossible task we've got sitting in front of us here. Jesus then took the loaves gave thanks, and I think one of the other gospel writers says, took the loaves and the fish. Could have held it here in his hand. Gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. The other gospel writer says he distributed to the 12, and the 12 distributed. So I'm picturing each disciple, 12 of them, have 12 groups of 50 to serve. We've got quite an impossible task here. But he took the loaves, gave thanks. Matthew and Luke both say he looked up towards heaven and gave thanks. And then according to the Gospel of Billy, he distributed Krispy Kreme donuts and walleye fillets fried in butter. Yes! Yes! God doesn't do anything halfway. He didn't feed them bluegills. He didn't feed them cold biscuits. If you think I'm stretching the story, look what he did when he changed the water to wine. People come to this, best wine they'd ever had. God doesn't... John just didn't tell us that part, that's all. (laughs) So I'm imagining walleye fillets in butter going... because. He did the same with the fish, passed them out like this. And when they had all had enough to eat, 5,000 men all had enough to eat. Gather up the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. There's probably a lesson in there, again, about not wasting It sounds like a lot, but when you think about, so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets. That's a basket for each disciple. John also doesn't tell us where he got the baskets. Did they just come with the fish and the bread? I, I don't know. He doesn't tell us. He tells us that they picked up 12 baskets worth of pieces of the barley loaves left over by those who had eaten <clears throat> I guess when they picked them up the bread went back from crispy keem to barley loaves but, I don't, but anyway, gather up the pieces so 12 baskets if I do 12 and I've got groups of 50 if you can, you can do this math with me you've got 12 and each one does 12 um, that's 144 and there's 50 each you come up with around 7,200 people you get into the ballpark of what kind of an impossible task we just did here. If God is in it, the resources will be there. Some take-home thoughts. I'll repeat myself. Just because something looks impossible doesn't mean that it is. It is. Too often we try not to do something where we, we won't try something because we think it's not possible. So we don't try. The Israelite nation did not think it was possible to conquer the promised land because they had big giants in there and they were used to fighting wars and they could not defeat them. And so they, for that they got to die in the desert. But think, of, just, just for thoughts to take with you, what if Mary had decided that being pregnant by the Holy Spirit was not possible? What if David had thought that slaying a giant with all he had was a slingshot and some stones was not possible? Just because something looks impossible doesn't mean it is. If God is in it, and if it's God's will to do it, there'll be a way to get it done. And I'm here to say this morning, when you, read, when you read this book, you're going to read lots of impossible situations, and those impossible situations are all answered by God. It's His will, and there's a way to get it done. My second point, if God asks us to do the impossible, He'll give us what we need to get it done. Yeah, we uh, that's kind of we're kind of pushing the envelope here a little bit, aren't we? But that's the story in the Bible. And certainly the story of the feeding of the 5000 is the same. Uh, it was God's will to accomplishment, to accomplishment, and we got the resources to do it, and he'll give us what we need. Now there's a part here that I want you to notice to achieve his purposes. I was talking to a man yesterday and we got to discussing this just a little bit. So often when we pray and when we're asking God to do the impossible for us it's for us, isn't it? I've even caught myself not considering is this, is this what I'm asking for God's will? Oh, I want it really bad. I've I've heard someone, and maybe if I said that person's name, it's not somebody from around here, but it's a well-known person, say, God gave me what I wanted. Ooh, I just kind of wiggle around inside and maybe outside too when I hear that because I'm, you know, if what I wanted is God's will, that's great but if what I wanted is outside of God's will, now what are you going to do? Can you say, God gave me what I wanted? I just, I'm just, i just saying, I feel like when we're dealing with the impossible, we need to square ourselves up with God's will for our, our life. I'm, I'm hoping you know what I mean by that. Because so many times we hear about people, well, God didn't answer my prayer. And I won't, I, I'm one that won't say, well... Was it God's will for your life? Because I, you know, I don't know if that person's ready to go there with that idea. But if it's not achieving his purpose, maybe it's not something that you'll find the resources for. Maybe we need to look at a new purpose. Which leads me to my third point. God may put us And remember, he asked, actually put the disciples, he says, you're going to test them. God may put us in impossible situations where we must depend on him for a miracle. And I got down to the bottom here. God gets all the glory, all the credit. I'm still thinking about this lady who does a great, it's a great Christian belief testimony, if you will. But when it ends up with God gave me what I wanted, hmm, I want to have a visit with her. <clears throat> I want to tell you a story that goes along with this, and this is, this is a true story. Some of you won't, but some of you will, remember a man named Hugh Sheffield. It was my privilege to, for Thursday mornings for two or three years, um, work with Hugh or have Hugh be present for a... Oh, I don't know. It was a second guy thing that we used to do, but we, we did Bible studies, but Hugh attended. But I don't know. I suppose there was six or eight of us there one morning. And how we got into this subject, I don't know. But Hugh Sheffield... Just let me give you a background for, the, for those of you that Hugh, is, Hugh and Marilyn have already moved away. They live in St. Joseph, Missouri now. <clears throat> But I wanted to relate this because Hugh related it to us. And, and I know I didn't even ask him if I could do this because I know he would want me to if I asked him. He was so positive about it. But Hugh did a 20-year military career. We found out we had some things in common there. He was Navy and I were Air Force, but we both spent some time in the Pentagon and it was kind of interesting to compare where he worked and where I worked and so on and how you get to work. And, that's neither here nor there. But after he, after he did his military career, he went to seminary and became a pastor at a church in California. And after he retired from out there, they moved here to Huron to spend a few years here because they had a daughter living here in the area. But <clears throat> Hugh said, You know, for a lot of years I always said, If I got cancer... I would just let the Lord have his way and I wouldn't take any chemo or, or radiation or anything like that. I would just trust the Lord with my life and let it be. And those of you that knew Hugh can almost hear him say, Then I got cancer. <laughs> Suddenly my story changed, he said. When I got cancer and they were offering me a way to perhaps get cured, With by taking chemo treatments and some radiation and so on, I needed to give that a try. So he said, I started the chemo treatments and the radiation and so on, but we weren't getting anywhere. And I was on my knees begging the Lord to heal me. And it came to me, that even though these great doctors and all of this technology that we have, that they were working on me, that if I didn't give God the credit for the healing, I wouldn't be healed. So he said, it was like I surrendered my life all over again to him and said, Lord, this man who once said, I wouldn't take any treatments, Lord, if you will use all these treatments and these great doctors and heal me, I will give you credit and praise for the rest of my life. And that's what he was doing. That's why he was telling us this story. And the last time I saw Hugh, he was still saying the same thing. God healed me. Oh, yeah, he used people. He used chemo and radiation and so on. But God healed me. Praise the Lord. God may put us in impossible situations where we must depend on him for a miracle. As soon as Hugh could get himself into the position where God was going to get all the credit for the healing, it began to work. And that morning he said, and I'm sitting here cancer-free. And we all said, praise the Lord. (laughs) I hope if there's people here this morning that I've encouraged you in some way to recognize that if you can get in line with God's will for your life and you've got an impossible situation that you'll go to him with it and trust him to solve that impossible situation for you. Would you stand as we close? Lord, I thank you for your word and how it speaks to us. And for our time here together this morning, we've looked into your word and caught a glimpse of how you deal with us, how you want us to believe in you and to trust you and believe that you will help us with things that look impossible to us, help us not only to put our faith and trust in you, but to give you the glory for what you accomplish through us. We thank you for your plan of salvation and all that it means to us for your word and how we can read it and apply it to our lives. Help us to go away today recognizing that you're there for us if we just call on you. And now I pray that the grace of God and the love of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will rest and abide upon each one of us as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen.